Hi and hello Watchfans and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighbourhood watchmaker, Rob Nuds, and my exceptionally charming co-host calling in all the way from Amsterdam. Today, Alon Ben-Joseph is going to kick us off with a question of his own from the mailbag. Is that allowed? Can you do that? We can do whatever the heck we want. It's our show. Oh, that's... Oh, God, that's scary. Good luck. Good grief. <laughs> Isn't it? That's why we started this podcast, right? We want to have fun. Yeah, true. Okay. Okay. Let's have some fun. So you woke up uh, in a good mood. Thank you for the compliments. What got into you today? Uh, good question. This is uncharacteristic. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk you back. I'll be a dick for the rest of the show. I promise. <laughs> By the way, you were dick-ish with Anne Ordain, which was an awesome episode. <laughs> I wasn't on it. I listened to it from A to Z. Um, usually, I don't listen to the podcast. I'm on myself, but I really enjoyed that. So compliments to you guys. Really enjoyed that episode. And now I want to buy an Anne Ordain watch. It was already on my uh, to-watch list. Now it made it to the wish list. Nice. Yeah, I can put a question in the mailbag and ask it myself. Last week, I had my first Rep Bar crew meetup in Amsterdam of 2023. It was great fun. So I wanted to ask you, Rob, what's your involvement with Rep Bar? I had the honor to set up the chapter in the Netherlands, the Amsterdam one. Um, I know you're involved with both Manchester and I see you attending a lot of Copenhagen ones. So... What is your involvement and what do you guys do during your meetups? Because globally, they're not the same. So I'm actually very curious. You know, the funny thing about something like Red Bar is when you know about it, it's the most obvious thing in the world and you expect everybody else in the industry to know about it also. But if you don't, if you somehow missed it, which I did for quite a while, I think, it just seems like this hidden, almost Masonic community that exists in the shadows of the industry. I think I first learned about the Red Bar movement while I was working in the States, which is perhaps unsurprising because that was where it all began, thanks to Adam Cranioats over there in New York. And I was working for Nomos, traveling around as their retailer trainer and sales account manager. And I was asked to attend by several retailers in the States, Red Bar events and give presentations, which I gladly did because one of the things Nomos is very well known for within the industry is having excellent visual material and wonderful training guides. Even way back in, I think it was 2016 Basel World, we would give out these little flashcards in an envelope, beautifully produced print media, explaining to people the importance of a DUW3001 caliber and exactly what Nomos had poured into it to achieve those technological feats, which is rare, you know, it's pretty rare. And I was always proud to present that brand with the media they provided me to do it. And I gave presentations in Minnesota and in Houston and I think in Carolina as well. And I was amazed to see how many people Nearly all adult males um, between the ages of, I guess, uh, 18 to 55, 60 years old would turn out in the evening, give up a few hours of their time, firstly to sit and listen to me monologue for an hour or so, which many of you on the other end of these uh, these podcasts will be used to doing, I'm sure. But I, I, I was stunned. So the first one I did, I think was, uh, oh, what's it called? Hudson Jewelers, maybe? in uh in minneapolis and there was 30 people they laid they they lined up the seats like a school assembly before the event kicked off and i was like you can't be serious there's not going to be that many people here to fill these seats and there were people standing around the outside of the edges picking away at the buffet that had been laid out a great spread and everything listening intently and then the q a session at the end was so enriching and so engaging I was hooked on the concept of it. And so I decided that when I went back to Manchester for a decent period of time, I would try and start Red Bar Manchester. And that coincided with the efforts of six other guys who had already banded together. Each one, I think, had had an idea independently to start it. The, the one that I remember leading the charge was Lee Evans, otherwise known as The Great Escapement on Red Bar. And he was the one that I knew for, uh, through our involvement at Chisham Hunter because he was working as a sales assistant there. And he said, oh, rather than you apply separately, just join our merry band of watch lovers and be one of the founding pillars of Red Bar Manchester, which I gladly did. And it was, I think, quite useful in a way to have that 
experience like from my side of the industry put into our crew and we threw a few events i'd say we did one every month or so or every couple of months in the run-up to the pandemic and then of course everything went very quiet and we are yet to return to the physical forum i have been to one red bar event since the pandemic restrictions lifted and that was copenhagen as you rightly mentioned and i was there with arcanaut the brand for whom i am head of brand development. And that was just great. It was so wonderful to be back in that environment. And I met some super fans of the Arcanaut brand and some super fans of the Real Time Show podcast. And yeah, it's like nothing else. It's like a a family away from home and um, a chapter system that you can tap up anywhere in uh, in the world and go and meet like-minded people for a chat about watches and if you do so desire a drink and some happy times so that's how i was exposed to the red bar network and how i ended up becoming a co-founder of a chapter myself how did it all start for you i will share that journey two more questions so there is no red bar in dresden glasshutter you know, there's no red bar in Dresden yet, but there is a, a Stammtisch event where um, people will meet and discuss watches. So there's kind of a Saxon interpretation thereof. It may be worth me trying to start a red bar chapter in Glasseter itself, but unfortunately, as anyone that's visited Glasseter in the last four years will know, there's no longer a pub or a watering hole of any description in Glasseter save perhaps the Namos Church on the hill. Maybe I should speak to Roland about using that as a, a location for hosting Red Bar Glasseter events. Oh, you've given me an idea now, as if I needed another thing to worry about. So not being a bar out there is a perfect opportunity to found a physical bar named Red Bar. Oh, God. So for our listeners, yeah, no, this is not good. So That's such a brilliant idea. Yeah, so the name the, the name sucks, right? Because Red usually insinuates something in politics or whatever. Not in your part of the world, mate. <laughs> not the yeah. kind of districts that we're used to seeing in Amsterdam, that's for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think Glasseter could do with one of those as well, to be honest. So for those that are not familiar with Red Bar, so I get this question asked often. Our mutual friend, Adam Craniotes, together with two more friends, uh, I think it's uh, her name is Kathleen, and she's the CEO today, and an MD, which I never met, I forgot his name, Jeff or something else, started meeting up in New York to share and talk about their passion for watches, and they would meet up in Chinatown in New York City at a bar called Red Bar. So that crew was formed and called and named ever since Red Bar Crew. In a summary, it's a non-profit collective of people into watches, meeting up. Everybody buys his own drinks, and they branded it. And then it became popular on Instagram. They were even very popular with their hashtag SexPile, which I don't think is used because everything SEX on Instagram is being deleted, blocked, or <laughs> whatever. So... They made the, the the picture famous where everybody would lay their watch on a table and then you would have a very sexy pile of watches and then photographed and put on social media. So that became very popular back in the days. Um, and that virus spread. And what made Red Bar special is that it's not snooty. Everybody is welcome to join. There is no subscription. There is no um, entry fee. There is no selection for memberships. If you have at least two watches, and that can be two swatches, you're a collector and you're welcome. You can find many red bars around the world. I guess the URL for the main organization is redbargroup.com. So it's R-E-D-B-A-R-G-R-O. OUP.com, because I think somebody hijacked redbarcrew.com. Um, so I've been friends with Adam Kraniotz for quite some time. Um, we already had an initiative in Amsterdam called the Amsterdam Watch Crew. So that's why I never took him up on his offer to found Red Bar Amsterdam. Um, and, and honestly, I was a bit reluctant because I didn't want to have conflict of interest because I'm a retailer as well. 
and I wanted to strictly separate them too. I didn't want to conduct business through the Red Bar label. So after him nudging me and the Amsterdam uh, watch crew sizzling and fizzling out, I took him up on his offer and I set it up. I'm keeping it totally separate. I'm doing it as a volunteer. There's no ACE intervention there. I do it as a private person. It's great fun. In Amsterdam, we're racking up uh, 250 members already. We meet at least once a month at a bar, not called Red Bar, because that doesn't exist in Amsterdam. So we've been joking around to find a uh, place and literally found a physical Red Bar Amsterdam. Super fun. We now get a lot of requests from brands to sponsor the evenings. So we have decided with a group of volunteers, we do one month sponsored and the other month we alternate and don't have it sponsored. So everybody puts down a fee. We give a guarantee for the organization, the owner of a bar to buy out the location basically. And then we meet up, super fun. Um, All the, the Dutch bloggers attend as well. So very laid back, great fun. Um, so this is also an open invitation to all watch fanatics, not only Dutch. We have actually have a lot of members from surrounding countries. Every communication for Red Bar Amsterdam is done in English because we have a lot of expats in the Netherlands. So feel free. The local URL is redbarams.com. So R-E-D-B-A-R-A-M-S.com. AMS stands for Amsterdam. Do you want to... Mention your URLs, Rob, if they want to join your Red Bars. Yeah, good point, actually. Why not? So the best way to get in touch with us or sign up, really, is just follow the Instagram. That's R-E-D-B-A-R-M-C-R. Anyone that knows about Manchester knows that the town, or city, should I say, is frequently shorted to M-C-R. So you can follow all of our activities there. And then from that Instagram, you'll be able to sign up for the mailing list and we can get in touch with you and invite you to our future events, which we hold at a variety of locations around town that are not announced publicly in advance of the event. We frequently have guests come along who are quite private about their collections and also often quite personally private and don't want to flaunt their wealth or possessions publicly so we have a very respectful atmosphere it's very confidential um, but it's not in any way stuffy or standoffish so if you want to get involved if you want to talk about watches if you are even just starting out in the journey and you may not even have bought your first watch and you want some advice or to see what is out there then come along have a pint have a look at the watches try them on dive into the sex pile and enjoy yourself now let's do a real question from the mailbag i think we owe Wouter. Oh, yeah. Wouter. Wouter <laughs> from Wrist Icons. He asked us already on the two pre- previous episodes what we thought was the best designs of the 90s, the noughties. So this year, or uh, sorry, this episode, we have to mention our best designs of the 10s, the 2010s. Rob, I'm super curious what you are going to pick. Oh, the teenies. Uh, so... We don't often prepare prior to recording, Alan and I. We tend to just wing it completely because we think that that helps give authentic and less contrived answers. But when there are situations when we're picking our favorites of you know a decade, it is worth us uh, discussing just to ensure that we don't pick exactly the same model and you know ruin the question. But had we picked the same model, we would have mentioned it. But I asked Alan what we should say for this question and he said let's pick one from the high end and let's pick one from the more entry level bracket because that's an interesting wrinkle to the question that we've addressed in the previous two q a sessions so that's why i have two choices my high-end choice for the 2010s the teenies is the hyt h2 model now hyt was a brand born in 2012 it was known for its very revolutionary, and I mean that literally for once, our indicator mechanism, which used a thin glass capillary filled with two different colored fluids separated by an almost imperceptible meniscus, which marked the time 
as two bellows, each one filled with a different colored fluid, worked against one another to push this meniscus around the dial. I fell in love with the concept the first time I saw it at Salon QP. I'm not sure what year that was. It might have been as early as 2012, but certainly 2013 if not. And I always coveted one of those pieces. I was invited to go to Sardinia to celebrate the launch of the RC44 Yacht Race Special Edition HYT H1. And my love for the brand deepened even further, not just because of the beautiful surroundings and the experience I was able to have on that trip and the people I was able to meet and forge lifelong friendships with, but actually because the watch technology was unlike anything else I'd ever seen in my life. And it was the kind of sideways thinking that appeals to me so much in watchmaking and is so rarely seen. I think there are very few brands that I would put on the same level. Maybe Ressence is the only other one that jumps to mind when it comes to integrating fluids and a completely novel time-telling method. I adore this particular execution. The H2 was the second model released, unsurprisingly, and it had a couple of visual distinguishers from the first piece, most notably the bellows were tilted in the h1 they stood side by side parallel in the h2 they were slanted away from one another and at a slight gradient so they added quite a bit of depth to the dial and the biggest change was that in the h1 the minutes were indicated via a sub dial at 12 o'clock on the h2 the minutes were indicated by a bent hand in the middle of the watch which stepped up to make the time telling experience a bit more traditional to the eyes at least and that subdial was replaced by a dial side balance wheel so it was an absolute stunner i thought the best execution of the original hyt concept which has been reinvigorated in recent years with the reformation of the brand after its bankruptcy which has seen the designs change quite drastically and actually think for the better if i'm being honest but this is from the 2010s so my favorite watch from the 2010s is the hyt h2 before i give my micro brands or smaller brand or independent brand or up-and-coming new brands I'm going to toss it over to you, Alon, because I talked for a long time without taking a breath there because I genuinely love HYT, as you can probably tell. Over to you. I love HYT as well. Resonance, also amazing. Love almost everything they do. The last collab, which was a triangle affair with Revolution or Grail Watch, actually, incepted by our friend Waiko of Revolution Magazine, together with Alain Silberstein, which I already adore since the 80s. I picked, and how can I not pick, the Bulgari Octofinissimo. It celebrated its uh, 10th anniversary last year. So 2012, we saw the light of those amazing watches. So how can I not choose that one? Um, I, and I think I've said it often on air. I, I find and found the last 10, 15 years relatively boring from a design perspective. We, we, we've been riding this retro vintage inspired wave so long, which I do love. So for the record, I do love it, but I find it a pity that it's more than 50% of everything being produced by the watch industry. So therefore, I salute and applaud Really innovative designs. Um, mechanically, it's also an innovation because they broke records with, I believe, eight of the 10 octos or the eight, eight years of the 10. They broke world records, especially on slimness. But I think they also deserve red dot design awards, etc. So it has to be the Octofinissimo from the mainstream high end spectrum of it if i have to choose something from the lower end the lower price point i think i'll go for another titanium watch which is the tudor pelagos um we hardly have seen new tool watches dive watches being produced Davide Serrato, our mutual friend, who also had something to do with 
HYT. Um, he's really a genius, a design genius, a concept genius. And he knows to play both games. He knows to play the vintage game, the retro game. And he definitely knows new contemporary out of the box designing. Um, so I do like the new Pelagos 39, but I like the original more. I obviously own a LHD, which I think is cool. But if we look at the first one, which was just black with white loom, and then also came out in, in beautiful mid blue with white loom, amazing watch. So I have to go with those two if I need to choose top of my mind, because you just asked me before we start recording. Um, I think if I have more time, I can mention 10 more. Um, but I actually had difficulties coming up with five watches if I had to, because I would like to see more innovation. We've seen a lot of innovation materials, also mechanical marvels. But um, the two you picked, I, I totally concur with that. Those are actually two awesome picks. Well, okay. So my my pick, I wasn't pulling restaurants in there as a second one, but like, you know, my pick is definitely the HYT H2. Restaurants is just a brand that I think is similar and quite delightful. But when it comes to my affordable pick from the teenies, it has to be back to my old friend, Giles Ellis and the Schofield Signalman, the original one, the GMT um, that came in a polished case and a DLC case and just looked like heaven on a tweed strap, which I'm about to fit mine to imminently. And I can't wait because owning that watch has been a culmination of many years scrimping, saving and searching as it happened to be necessary. And you will see very soon, or here, should I say, on the Real Time Show, a watch review of the new Schofield Beta B5, but in comparison to the original Schofield Signalman, because I thought it'd be interesting to take the first decade of a watch company's existence and its very first product and its most recent product and compare them side by side and have a look at what material improvements and design changes there have been over that period so we've got something quite exciting coming for you soon in the next few weeks so stay tuned to that and keep your eyes peeled on instagram for the images of the schofield b5 going up there so you can ask us your questions about it and the brand and the man behind it whose interview has remained one of the most listened to and talked about that we've done since we launched the real-time show alon why don't you dive into the mailbag and see what else we have there i like these best of questions have we got any more perhaps we do but before we do so, I wanted to also say to our listeners, please do listen to that episode with Giles Ellis of Schofield Watches, because I've known about him and his brand from day one. And obviously, I, I, I love watches and I read daily about watches and I like to hear about new stuff. And I've been admiring from afar, but I, I really enjoyed listening to that episode with him because it became almost a monologue. I even call it a, a a masterclass of how to start a watch brand 101. He's so kind to share his journey and the mistakes he made and the things he's learned. So even if you don't want to start a watch brand or you're not a marketeer, then it's still fun to listen to. So that 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 was actually interesting you picked that one, Rob, and and rightfully so because he literally went back to the drawing board and tried to make something new, which is super cool. So, something from the mailbag. Jeroen from The Hague sent me a question on Signal. I like to move away from WhatsApp and go to Signal. So, a lot of friends message me there. He asked us, what are the top five brands in your opinions? A, in the top segment, and B, in the affordable segment, which he says under 15K. So, Rob. I'm very curious what 10 watches you're going to mention. Whoa. Uh, okay. 10 brands, five above 15K and five below 15K. That's quite a quite a boundary to a set, 15,000. I mean, I'm not sure that many people would say that 
anything over 10 is particularly affordable or maybe even anything over five is usually considered in that realm, but we'll play the game. We'll answer the question as it is posed. Uh, so top five, I suppose the top five is supposed to be easier because there's no limit to that. Um, I'm going to say that off the top of my head. Okay. Let's start with the easy ones. Okay. So Langer and Zerner, that's my favorite brand. Um, Overall, I guess. HYT. I know we're really hot on HYT today, but since it's fresh in my mind, how can I ignore the fact that they still do something that nobody else does? Kari Vutalainen, anything by him. Collaboration with Schwarzetien is a nice, relatively affordable and accessible piece. The Roma Synergy, that's a cool watch. Um, Of course, I have to say Chapek because I... I love Chapek and I love Xavier and everything that the brand does. So that one's always going to be in there for me. And then finally, I suppose if I had unlimited cash and I was buying for myself, Grunefeld, actually. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The boys, the boys really? from the Netherlands would, would sneak in there in the fifth spot at least. Um, actually, probably ahead of Kari as well, actually. If I'm going to buy in order, I'd probably go and get myself a Langer. Um, I have a Chapek, but I would like to get a Ratchapan, and I'd like it if they ever did one in full rose gold. We're talking if I had unlimited money here, right? So these are unrealistic picks for me. I love the new HYT Moon Phase watches. I think they're super cool. And Davida had quite a lot to do with that phase of the brand as far as I understand it. So I would love to pick up one of those. And I think that the green is always going to be my favorite when it comes to HYT. And yeah, Grunefeld, I mean, the, the aesthetic is unlike anything else. And the, the finish on the movements is probably my favorite when it comes to movement architecture design in uh, in the modern era. So they're my top five over 15. What about you? Interesting. I, I, I didn't see those coming. I, I, I guessed you would mention Lange, although I I also love Lange, but not everything they do. Um, Grunefeld I did not see coming. So Chapik, obviously, I could have guessed. So for me, um, it was actually a bit difficult. So is it the overall brand or or do I pick just five lingerie brands that are almost my grail watches? So... Patek Philippe, I have to mention, I have to mention as the first one. I, I, I always said when I turn 40, I'm going to buy one. Although I had a Nautilus 5711, but I gifted to my dad before I was 40. So I bought my, my first one when I passed the 40. I got my second one and I'm still not done. Um, are they a bit boring? Yes, maybe. But it's always nice to have those timeless, dress-styled, minimalistic watches in your collection. I personally enjoy them. FP Journe is a grail watch that, that, that I have been adoring for quite some time. And I almost like everything they do. So I, I need to give a shout out to them. Um, I've, I've said this on air and I've been uh, adoring publicly on our show and especially uh, it was a joy for me to talk to Martin Fry together with you on air so Urwerk has to be there and we've spoken a lot about MBNF so they have to be up there so that makes four and then I got stuck who do I pick as a fifth one for me um, and then I'm a bit all over the place it could be that I also will add a Lange and Söhne, abbreviate to ALS. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Just for, for the sake of full transparency, this is one of the questions that we definitely didn't discuss beforehand because we thought it would be fair on a short list like this, rather than picking out individual watches, if the same brands had cropped up on the lists together. So that's interesting. You went for Patek. FB Journe. MBNF. Yeah. Uvek. And then finally, a langer soon. So that's, huh? I am a bit surprised. Okay, so now I'm feeling like a bit of an idiot because when you mentioned all of those, I was like, oh yeah, of course. I'm a. I'm also devastated that neither of us mentioned a Crivia, uh, or Ferdinand Berto or something like that, or Louis Monet, and you left off very accusatorily. I don't know. I left it off as well. Laurent Ferrier. After we both had. 
um, a, a moment, shall we say, earlier this week when we saw the new Torbjorn Sport. Hmm, interesting. So much to choose from. Yeah, that was lovely. But but you know what? This is a bit of a trick question, or it's too wide. It's not narrow enough. So should we say, hey, which five watches do you want from the top segment for yourself? Or who do you think are top brands? I mean, we could have gone down the 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 route of grail watches. What do we think are the five grail brands, right? So it's a bit tricky, this question. But since we're on that this path, let's continue. So let's do the affordable segment. I got one question for you before we do the affordable segment, okay? Because I'm not known as a massive fan of Patek Philippe, which is mm-hmm. not to say that I have anything against the brand. It's just very few things in the collection really set me alight but recently when i was writing an article for one of my clients i stumbled across a nautilus that i adore beyond compare and if i were ever to buy myself one and this watch would require me to sell at least i think half of my collection to afford but it's not beyond the realms of possibility i I could do that i'll see my way to doing that and I'm not yet 40, so maybe I could give myself that for the same date that you chose for yourself. But have you any idea which model it is? Can you guess what I love? Knowing that I love a particular type of chronograph function, let's put it out there as a little little dangling hint for you. They don't make a rattrapante yet in the Nautilus, so I have to go with the chronograph travel time, so the 5990 in steel. Nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. I love, love, love this watch. I think it's a beautiful layout with the home and local indicators just symmetrically based along the horizontal axis there and the two sub-dials, one at 6 o'clock and one at 12 with the slightly off-white ecru-colored loom and hands. Oh, my word. That is a Nautilus for which love to die. Love it. And I love the local and home indicators. So, so playful. Cool. Yeah, so yeah. playful. And I like that they're rounded cubes so very cool all right let's take on the smaller brands the sub 15k tricky 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 price bracket again but let's have a go do you want to go first this time Ooh, i I had a lot of difficulties there so for the record i'm choosing brands i love and i think they're doing 80 percent good things so obviously not everything but um if i think of brands overall that do amazingly should i pick rolex i say sarcastically unfortunately yes they're on it it's a bit tricky because do they belong in this category below 15 i guess so because who doesn't want or own or owned a steel Rolex and the majority are still below 15k so therefore I do put them in this bracket um so I put Rolex there and but but then I'm very quick to mention Nomos I mean it's not a secret that I'm a huge fan neither are you it's actually the 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 reason we met um I, I put Nomos there um then I have to mention Omega. Um, and I don't think I need to explain myself. Big speedy fan. have been so for over 30 years. Own many. Um, don't love per se everything they do, but I do think they do 80% well in their collections. Um... Going from there, I think I'm going to mention Zenith. How can I not mention an El Primero watch? Um, leaves me with one more position. And then I get stuck again, like in the previous list. Um, I had too many at this point. I was just, really? I, had to cut, I had to cut out like four watch, four watch brands from this segment that I, I feel should be in my top five. It was horrendous. I, really? I instantly, instantly spewed out nine brands that I felt like deserved a mention. So I'll probably mention a couple of those at least as honorable ones, but yeah, no, I really struggled because it's just too many good ones. Yeah, there, there are, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm using my own reference and almost 
as a wish list? Like, what would I buy today? From what brand would I now pick up watches? I kind of went for what brand have I bought from already? So when I had a tiebreaker, I looked in my box and counted how many I had from each. And I said, well, that watch brand has got to be on the list, surely. That's how I did it. Fair enough. So, okay, fair enough. So the majority in quantity, which I bought, is Tudor. And I hardly dislike anything they do. So thank you for helping out. That's my list, Rob. What's yours? That's a good choice. Yeah, it's a, it's a great choice. Um, my list, like I say, in the end, it was informed by watches that I own more pieces of. Uh, one brand on this list that I currently don't own any of because I sold my last one recently is Rolex. So um, I felt a bit grubby about taking up a spot that could have been used for something far more interesting and soulful for Rolex. But also I'm aware of the fact that if you don't mention the biggest, most powerful brand in the price point that it, it mostly operates within, you're going to look a bit silly. Let's face it. I mean, you know, how can you ignore it? Uh, I know that some of the watches are now a little bit, I think, pushing the top end of what you can reasonably charge for them as watches. And I'm, I'm looking at the Submariner most directly because I think that that's now getting a bit ridiculous. I'd still think that the Oyster Perpetual is such a brilliant value watch for what it is, even at 5K. I think it's nice, classic, timeless. Uh, they experiment with that one maybe more than they do with others, which is nice from Rolex because we don't see much vivaciousness in designs. So had to be on the list. I also put Omega on the list because I have several Speedmasters and it's, again, just really tough to uh, talk down what that brand is doing at that price point and for its collector community, although we do need a Speedy Tuesday 3 at some point, please, Omega. That would be nice. What else? Well, uh, this is where the tiebreaker of pieces I own came into it and I have Schofield in there uh, because Schofield is one of the design leaders in that segment. I have Laventure because I own three of them and that brand has just created an explosion of interest in the past few months and years. And I have Fortis as my last one because I love the brand. I love what they're doing. I love how it's run. You all know I'm heavily involved with Fortis on a personal level and I have now added an, yet another for us to my collection. So, yep, that's it for me. Very nice. And I'm actually curious to know which Fortis you're referring at because I missed that memo. Uh, I actually can't say at the moment. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I'm quite sure you'll find it on his Instagram soon, guys. Uh, yeah, you'll, you'll see it soon enough, we, yeah. We're promoting our handles way too much, so we're not going to repeat it and definitely going to spell it. So, Rob, I, I kind of enjoy this game, and I do know our listeners enjoy this game. I want to add a bonus column and another uh, top five to this question. So, bonus question um, to Jeroen's question. If I had to twist your arm and ask you five brands and keep it below 5K or even push you down to 3, 2K, could you do that? Uh, off the top of my head without any preparation. Yes, yes, um, yes, yes. I could give it a go. I definitely have two right on the tip of my tongue because one of them was about was almost going to make this list and um, the other one is basically the sister brand of it and that's really, really affordable. So I could, I could have a go and see what comes if I just keep talking. Or maybe I'll do two, then I'll make you do two, and then I'll try to do another two, <laughs> so on and so forth. How about that? Compromise? Agreed. All right. Okay. Well, I'll go straight off the bat then. This is going to be good for the editing process because I don't need to cut anything else out. Anodane. Anodane really was clinging to the edges of that top five and it should have been in really, but I had to make the distinction somewhere and I just owned more pieces from the other brands than I do from Anodane. And so that was it. You know, funnily enough, recently um, after my interview with Lewis, which was... Uh, a lot of fun as you will know if you've listened to it already i went back and looked at the collection again because i was always more interested in the original model 2 the 36 millimeter version than i was in the model 1 and certainly more than i am in the oversized model 2 large which just doesn't sit right on my wrist but i found a model 1 that i absolutely 
love. It's uh, this, well, it was not Postbox Red. It was a replacement for the previously Postbox Red model. It's Japanese Oxblood. But the reason why I love it so much is because it has this vivid coral printing around the outside edge, which creates such a lovely contrast. I told Lewis to put me on the waiting list, and he said that I might expect to receive one late 2024, but not before. So yeah, that is a model that I will add to my collection. And as look, Anodane's prices have to increase over time because there's no way they can keep doing what they're doing at this price point. It's way too suppressed. Anybody that knows the level of craftsmanship that goes into creating these dials and the time and the effort and the amount of QC failures that you have to deal with when working with real vitreous enamel knows that right now is the time to get your name on a waiting list, secure a model from Anodane at this price because they have to go up. They simply have to. It is a crazy value proposition as it is. And talking of value propositions, I'll chuck my second brand out there. And this is Anodane's sister brand, Paulin Watches. That's P-A-U-L-I-N watches.com if you want to check them out. Now they make these really nice, I suppose I would describe them as neo-vintage because I'm heavily influenced by their press material. Watches, again, from Glasgow. Uh, They do a lovely wall clock, which I actually have in my kitchen. And I would wholeheartedly recommend looking into this brand, which is going to be available at multiple price points in the near future, depending on what kind of movements you love. And yeah, the Neo B, for example, with the horizontally striated, I don't know what you'd call it, glazed honey dial. That's what I'm going to go with, which is still available for just £395, is a winner. So go check that out. That's P-A-U-L-I-N-W-A-T-C-H-E-S. Dot com. Wait, 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 wait. This is awesome. This proves why I love our show so much. I freaking learned something new. Why did I miss the memo that Lewis and team made a second brand? I, I, I missed that. Did you guys discuss that on the episode? No, because it's his wife's brand. No way. I'm going to get her on to discuss it. Yeah, a wife and her, and her sister's. Amazing. I didn't even know that. So you see, guys, even I learned something new about watches on my own podcast. That's amazing. I've been Googling while you're talking, or I typed in when you were spelling. These watches are freaking amazing. Yeah, they're well nice. Yeah, gorgeous. Super cool. I'm going to order the wall clock. Looks cool. It's a bit Neo Bauhaus, um, uh, Alain Silberstein-ish. Super cool. Very nice. Fonts are awesome as well. They've yeah, got some of the best yeah, font yeah. work in the whole industry in Anodane and Paolo. Wow. Them. Yeah, it's top. Wow, I'm going to order that. That's cool. Um, Rob, you know, I, I, I'm I, sorry I'm a bit of a disturbing factor today, but, you know, I think it was a missed opportunity on the interview with Lewis about Anodane is you guys didn't do a deep dive. What makes enamel so special? We assume that everybody knows what that is because I have always been obsessed about enamel. I, I love stained glass. We have a lot of it in Amsterdam. Enameling always fascinated me because there's a high level of, of, of manual labor in there, right? Can you quickly bring our listeners up to speed what enameling is, what it means in watchmaking, and why it's so special in watches and why you hardly see it? So it's rare in watchmaking because it's difficult, as you might expect. Enamel, there's a few different types. Let's talk about two. There's, well, vitreous enamel, which is crushed glass effectively, which is remelted to a liquid state at a very, very high temperature. And there is cold enamel, which is more like a resin, which you, it's normally a two part kind of epoxy that you mix together and you can do similar applications with it. It comes in um, opaque, in transparent, in many different colors. You can do many things, very beautiful. But it's not quite the same. It's not quite as lustrous. It's not the real deal, as it were. And it doesn't last as long as real vitreous enamel that has been fired at high temperatures. And we're talking several hundred degrees Celsius in a kiln. How does this process work? Well, Anodane starts off with a dial blank, which it can really be made from many materials, like often copper or silver is chosen. And on occasion, Anodane will stamp this blank so that it has a pattern and also a profile, which is very important when you look at the Fume dials. Anodane was actually the first brand in the world to do this kind of 
fume with this kind of vitreous enamel to achieve this effect where the enamel seems to get darker around the outsides. The reason for that is because it's actually deeper because the dial is dished. It's not easy to tell that, but the enamel in the th center of the dial is thinner than the enamel at the edges. That's how they do it. It's not by blending colors in with the enamel. It's just to do with the shape of the dial and how it crests towards the middle. Those are beautiful dials. They are incredibly hard to make because this is glass that you're working with at very high temperatures and it can crack. And another thing that one has to account for and people don't really talk about too often when it comes to any kind of enameling is how you have to enamel the back of a dial that you're firing at those temperatures as well so that when the enamel pulls on the substrate upon which it is placed it doesn't shatter and pull itself to pieces you need that counteracting force of enamel placed on the underside of a dial as well to hold it all in place the upshot of that is that you have a dial that is very thick and also requires you to have a movement modification in terms of hand height should you be using a traditional off-the-shelf movement. Although most brands do provide at least four options of movement hand height, which is represented normally by H1, H2, H3, or H4. So there's a few things to take into consideration, and then you have to get down to the decoration of the enamel dial once it's finished. That is performed via a pad printing process. If you've not encountered pad printing before, what it does, uh, what these machines do is hold the dial in place and above it, they have a silicon ball, which is moved off to the side and dropped down onto a printing plate, which has been engraved with a design that is to be transposed onto the dial and filled with ink or paint. The silicon ball squishes into this, pulls it up, it's amazing to watch. It pulls up totally all the paint, comes off at once and sticks to the silicon ball, which deforms it, of course, when the silicon ball itself is not depressed. You move that silicon ball back over the top of the dial and you squeeze down on it. If you have multiple colors of dial print, as Anodane does in the Japanese Oxblood that I mentioned before with its white markers and its vivid coral markers, you have to wait until the ink dries on the dial and then put it back in the machine and do the process again with a totally clean cliche that's what these plates are called uh, it looks like the word cliche you know so it means like the same basically like an imprint and you need to repeat the process and if you have multiple colors of course it's a longer process that takes more time when anodane started working with vitreous enamel they were dealing with a craft that was listed as critically endangered by the british crafts association or whatever the heck it's called and they had to bring it back almost from the dead. There were no books written on the subject. There were no experts still alive, or at least none that were willing to share their secrets. And so they had to start with a blank page and basically rewrite the history of British watch dial enameling for themselves and for future generations. And they did this rather effectively, but it was a process of trial and error that lasted several years. Because Anodane's actually been around longer than you would think, given the fact that the watches themselves have only been available for about three years. Three or five years, I forget. But one of the coolest things that is the most Scottish twist to this tale that Lewis has told me in the past is that when they first started pad printing vitreous enamel dials, they were using traditional watchmaking inks or paint, if you prefer, for the dial. And it wouldn't stick. It was running off all over the place. And the, the preciseness, the precision that they were going for was at such a level that this ink was simply not sufficient. And so they started asking around for alternatives to it. And living in Glasgow, they had one manufacturing industry to tap up that they perhaps hadn't expected working with, and that was the whiskey bottle printing industry. And so instead of using watchmaking dial inks, Anodane uses whiskey bottle inks, inks made especially for the printing of whiskey bottles on its dials. And that's how they achieve that level of precision on vitreous enamel that will last for many generations to come. So in a nutshell, that's what you're looking at. Um, there aren't or there weren't any experts upon which to lean. They had to learn it themselves. They had to go through this process. It took years. And now they have a skilled team of less than 10 people in the enameling department working away daily to try and fulfill the backlog of orders that they've amassed because of the wonderful creations they've been putting out into the world. Does that give you the answer in a nutshell? Big nutshell. Big fucking nutshell. I know that. Sorry. No, it does. It does. And actually such a joy listening to you you're such a walking encyclopedia 
and I sound sarcastic, but I actually mean it. I'm sitting here and listening to you, and I'm like, oh, now I know why I started this podcast together with you, besides that you are a great chap and funny sometimes. Um, yeah. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> you actually know what you're talking about. So, you know, I, I, I was actually blown away um, listening to the interview with uh, Lewis about how they indeed imprinted those. Because I was wondering, because usually enamel dolls, they're either uh, painted or they literally bake in the, the 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 contrasting color, let's say. If it's usually the dolls are enamel, white enamel, which Anordain does an array of colors, which is lovely. I, I love the mailbox red or what was it, the royal mail red. Um, which moved to this ox blood red that you're referring to. Um, so I was actually very curious to see or hear how they printed those dolls because um, it gives a different effect than those old school um, enamel dolls. Um, I wanted to ask you, Rob, porcelain is something different. It's close. It gets baked. It has glazing on it. Um, do you love craquelé on these kind of dolls, or do you actually dislike it? Where do you stand? I personally love it. So you mean when the when they've started to sort of split like a a, a hot mud path in the sun, that kind of thing? Yes. So what I mean by that, craquelé is a French word for you could translate to crackle. So you see veins popping up. You'll see that in old. Um, uh, uh, glasswork plates, very old ones, or um, ceramics, and you'll see that also in vintage watches. Yeah, of course, it's uh, well, it's a fact of life, really. Um, in the very old ones, it's hard to say exactly what will happen um, to all vitreous enamel in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. I mean, we're probably talking more like hundreds of years before you'll see anything like that occurring nowadays, but it is a fact of the material and one that I accept, although I wouldn't seek it out if I'm being quite frank. If I were to be a collector of vintage pocket watches, which I'm, I'm not, I, I don't wear waistcoats these days as much as I did once, I would certainly covet an unblemished and unbroken enamel dial, without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, Crackle is not exactly the same thing as broken. It's not like it's shattered. It's just sort of like starting to sort of splinter across the top, the utmost layer. But no, for me, it's not something I like. What I love about Anodain is that beautiful crispness of the material, how it sort of seems to be a, a rich fluid in state just hanging there on my wrist like a, a beautiful globule of morning dew gonna leave it there like yeah i love it uh, <laughs> <laughs> no but you know what i mean like it's a wonderful material it, it it doesn't look quite real and the cruel thing about everything that anodane does is it's much better in real life and it looks online it looks amazing online like the photographs are stunning but when you see it in real life and you see it on your wrist and you see the way that it interacts with natural light it's uh well, I mean, it's it's going to take some beating in the sub two thousand five hundred euro category. Let's put it that way. And 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 I was also referring to these old steel cups or bots that are enameled. So I actually, when I renovated my personal home, my house, everything that's a bot, sink, whatever, is actually enameled steel. The downside is with little kids when they chip it, you'll see it. But I think it adds to the character. Um, so the last watch I owned with enamel dial, a grand feu dial was by Ulysse Nardin. They actually make amazing dials. And for me, Anordain really comes high as a second. I don't even know who today makes their own enamel dials besides these two brands, Rob. Who does it well, still does it? Maybe Patek. Well, if you remember, Moser recently released an Endeavor, I think it was, with a female yes. dial that was yeah. uh, looked to be quite inspired by and Ordain, um, I believe Moser had some claim to doing the first female dial uh, of that kind, but, well, it certainly is the first at that price point, I think. But, of course, we saw the same technique a little earlier from the Scottish outfit. So they've done their own, and they're very beautiful, and they look great in their 
cases as well. And hmm, who else makes their own enamel dials? Uh, Blancpain actually do some really nice stuff. There's one watch by Blancpain in the Villarreal collection, which is my absolute favorite dress watch at the moment. And that is the Villarreal Huit Jours Semaine. I think it's called. My French is terrible, but I guess it's eight days weekly um, as the title translated roughly. And it's um, gold with a uh, enamel dish subdial at nine o'clock. Now, dishing a subdial in vitreous enamel is pretty difficult. And I know this because Lewis and I have been discussing different ways to do it and how to bring it to life for the last couple of years now. And that is taking a lot of focus away from his team. But if they manage to do that, you can imagine what kind of things they could bring to the Anodane collection. Yeah, because it's a, it's literally a craft that died and also, I, I, I guess that from the 90s, 80s, 90s, the only two companies that really, really invested in that were Gégère Lecoultre and I think Patek Philippe. I've, I've heard stories that, that uh, uh, Cherry's dad, Cherry Stern's dad, kept on making these desktop clocks, and they're usually enameled all around, just for the sake of keeping the craft in the company. And they literally stacked up and they hardly sold these table clocks. And, and what I think is cool, Gégère Le Couture, you can get your reversal customized with an enameling painting drawing on the reverse side of your watch. So they're not particularly dials, but I think it's a very cool enamel craft. So that's that. Rob, I think, uh, it's your turn. You opened a can of worms. You oh, yes. Yeah, so, so like, well, okay, let's limit it to three brands. So I'll give you Sorry, two. I, I've got one more and then you've got one more, but you've got to get on with this now. Look what you've I, done. You know, I, I, I've, I've, been, I've been thinking so much about Anama. I lost the, the, the thread. Sorry about that, uh, guys. Um, strangely enough, Hamilton comes to mind. If I have to mention a brand, really a lot of bang for your money is Hamilton. Um, usually I suggest new collectors or people who are in, want to get into watches and want a cool either mechanical watch or more of a utility tool watch. I highly recommend a Kiki Field. It's always fun to start off with a hand-wound movement. So that's a watch around 1,000 euros that I highly recommend. Great pedigree. Uh true U.S. Army watch. Um, staying in the Swatch group, how can I not mention Tissot? Although I don't like everything they do. They, I love a lot what Hamilton does. Tissot not per se. Well, good ones. Yeah, Tissot, Hamilton. Yeah, I mean, uh, how can you say no? I mean, in terms of bang for your buck, it's basically impossible to be anything from the Swatch group. But one brand that's doing their level best to offer something that the Swatch group can't even touch is another one that goes for slightly translucent dials with a beautiful finish, and that's Straum, my buddies from Norway. Now, you know I went on a crazy expedition with Straum last year, and hopefully we'll be going on more with them in the future. But first and foremost, what I love about these guys is the watches that they're putting out there. They're just so amazing for the money, and they're about to get a hell of a lot better. We've been working on a new collection together for the last... Ooh, year and a half now at least i think and we're gonna get the boys lasse and einstein on soon and a couple of weeks i think i'll be recording with them before einstein goes off to bali for 12 weeks or so and um yeah you'll get to learn more about them and their activities up in oslo and beyond they are exciting they are dynamic they are bringing a new design language to the table and just like my friends in denmark at arkenaut they came at the watchmaking game with a really fresh perspective and i think given that these watches still retail for under two thousand euros once you factor in taxes to most parts of the world it is an absolute winner that's the cool thing i've never held a strom in my hands i i i love the fact how passionate you are about them and that's why you wanted to work with them so very cool that you kicked in a brand that I don't know to prove that I'm objective. I don't retail Frederick Constant. I interviewed their CEO and my friend Niels Egerding, also a Dutchman. 
Um, they definitely deserve a spot in my list. Um, also great value for money. It's amazing. They created 30 calibers themselves out of necessity because Swatch Group didn't want to supply them ETA movements anymore. So they deserve a spot on my list. Well, yeah, with that monolithic oscillator, how can you leave FC off this list really at that price point? It's unbelievable watchmaking and something very futuristic that we don't often see from a brand retailing around that amount. All right, that'll do for the day. Wow, we really went down the rabbit hole there with our lists and our top this, that and the other. But that's what this show is about, I guess. Real talk about everything time, as you like to say. We will be back soon with another interview this Thursday and another Q&A the following week. If you would like to take part in the show and send us your questions, you can do so by contacting us on Instagram, either at Rob Nudds, that's R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S, or at Alon Ben-Joseph, that's A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. If you prefer, you can contact us, us. If you prefer, you can contact us via email, I'm available at either, you can find me at rob at therealtime.show or alon at alon at therealtime.show. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking.